Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, it is my unique privilege to welcome Mr. V.K. Garg, who is a very, very senior government official. V.K., welcome to the show. Thank you, Hashim. V.K. is uh, from Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. He joined the Indian Revenue Service, has had a very, very distinguished career, including uh, being the recipient of the President of India Award. He is currently an advisor on financial resources to the Chief Minister of Punjab in the rank of Minister of State. He is a taxation guru. He's worked with government and private sector. He's a teacher and he's an author of two books on taxation. So we can tell me, what would you say are three key milestones in your life or career? Ashutosh, first of all, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with this word called milestones. Okay. What people see as milestones have been chance happenings in my life. Okay. So if we were to relate to you some of the things, you know, like my admission into IMM Rabat. Mm -hmm. In those days, I think the you required about 25 rupees to get the prospectus and apply for the form. Correct. And my mother won't give it to me. Uh -huh. She said, I know you just asking this for your pocket money or something mm -hmm. at times. Until a friend of mine, I think a day or two before the deadline, he said, BK, I have a form which I have half filled up, but I don't want to now apply. Do you want to use it by applying whiting? So I applied white ink and finally, you know, admission happened Edible. without wow. any CAT training or any of those things. Amazing. Same thing happened with my civil services entry. I stayed with a friend of mine without telling parents. Uh, mm -hmm. In the morning, I returned around 9.15 types. 9.30 was the prelims exam. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, you have your exam today. What are you doing? I said, I'm not wanting to take it. Mm -hmm. He says, kind of with a danda, she told me. And same scooter, I turned back, took a pen in hand and went and appeared for the prelims and that happened. Amazing. So all the good and bad happenings in my life have mm -hmm. been chance. Wonderful. Well, that's nice of you to admit it. And yeah, even my admission, I was once to be posted to London in the Indian embassy there. And I saw my order in black and white until the file got recalled by the PM for some other reasons. Mm -hmm. And when it returned, my name was cancelled. Okay. The okay. best posting again happened by chance. Okay. So I am the contribution. Yes. I agree. As, you know, as they say very rightly, life happens. Yes. So for most of us, it's, it's exactly the same. So let's move on, VK, to your uh, stint in the Indian Revenue Service. My first and basic question that I've been pondering over is that after Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad, when people have gone and joined the biggest companies, gone off overseas consulting, what made you decide to work for government of India? Yeah, this must be one question that I would have answered the maximum number of times in my okay. life, including when I was interviewed in civil services. Right. And rightly or wrongly, the same question was asked in the opposite direction when I quit government. Mm -hmm. People were asking, why are you quitting government to go back to uh, entrepreneurial life or a private okay. sector kind of a life? Right. So I used to tell them that I was asked this question when I was joining government as well. Mm -hmm. So I tried to analyze how I ended up being in government. I think I was of an impressionable mind. Hmm. I was posted in private sector in my hometown. And there was a massive pressure from everybody around at that age that, yes, we don't recognize the general manager of a company, however big or small. Mm -hmm. But they knew what an SDM means, what a deputy commissioner means, and so on and so forth. So 
I was persuaded to at least, as I told you, you know, I was not seriously taking the civil services. I ended up qualifying for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know which service to join. So then I thought, okay, there's no harm in trying revenue services, which has a linkage with the industry right. for about four, five, six years. Right. So my initial interest was only to join four, five, six years and return back to the private sector. Mm. Service treated me very well. Mm. 85 reward scheme came. So anybody we caught, 10% would be ours officially. Mm. So I was the highest paid pass out from my batch. Okay. During the years, 85 to sometimes 90 or so. Mm. And every few years after that, I was thinking of quitting. Mm. But I was very lucky uh, to have a great career. There were times they were trying to send me to World Customs Organization, London and so on and so forth. So ultimately, I ended up quitting also because the desire to quit was there, but it happened a little later than I would have ordinarily thought. Okay, wonderful. So, you know, uh, when I was reading about you, I found that you've spent a lot of time in enforcement. Why do, why do people fear the enforcement officials so much? Ashutosh, I will grant you that people fear enforcement. Mm. But when you're on the other side of the table, let's say you are an enforcement officer, mm. most people would feel that the industry doesn't fear the tax departments. Okay. So it's clearly a difference of perception if you mm. see the two sides of that coin. Mm. So one tries to look at objectively that what will be the right state of affairs. Mm. One thing which is measure of evaluation is called the collection efficiency of a tax. And this is then ranked worldwide. What is the C efficiency of country A versus B versus C? Mm -hmm. So, and this is, there are two parameters for this. One is from the OECD, another is from the IMF. But the fundamentals are same. Mm -hmm. It says how much is the amount of tax you are collecting divided by what is your potential to collect tax. So, New Zealand is 95% tax. India is close to 40 UK will be around 55, Germany will be 65, there are countries around that, but New Zealand is exceptionally high. Mm. Now, this should give you an extent of both the fear of enforcement agencies or the lack of fear of the enforcement agencies. Correct, correct, correct. And I guess a lot of it is also, again, you know, it's a chicken or the egg story that what is it actually that drove India to have such a large parallel economy? You know, is it fear of enforcement or is it just desire not to pay any taxes? You know, and nobody really knows. Yeah. So they're so, all kind of, yeah, No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, it's okay, I'm okay. Fine. So, you know, we, you know, when we read about taxation across the whole world, and I've lived in Singapore for many years, if, if there's a, an issue, you go to the Singapore, I used to go to the Singapore tax government and authorities, and it would be resolved in a few minutes. In India, it has always been a big challenge. It's improving, I must say. So my question to you is that what is needed to develop a partnership between the tax authorities and the common people so that the efficiency of collection, as you just mentioned, improves? Yeah, of course, this is one question that should be bothering, you know, everybody. And this has been bothering all administrators of tax and policymakers for many, many decades. See, the way I look at it is a tax system is finally a reflection of the society. Many people ask me, BK, why can't we write a simple law? Mm. And I was in that job for writing the laws also. Mm. But then you will get a feeling that people don't want a simple law. Mm-hmm. This might shock a lot of people. 
that why people won't want a simple law. Let me try to give you a one-page GST law, which is one of the most controversial laws for the last three years. Yeah. So I wrote something which can be what is called as the charging section for GST. Mm -hmm. It could read something like following. Mm -hmm. GST shall be paid at 10% on the value relies on any supply, mm -hmm. except supplies mentioned in the annexation, which mm -hmm. should not be more than 10. Mm -hmm. Made for consideration, deducting any GST paid on any supply received, Mm. predominantly for making the supply. Okay. So you pay tax on everything at uniform rate of 10%. Mm. And you take tax credit or whatever you paid. Okay. Realized. Right. Nothing else to be bothered. Right. There will be a procedure you pay this tax by this date, file this return, etc. etc. Oh. Now what would happen? Even a fifth grade student can understand this law. Absolutely. I don't need a session for that. Yeah. Then somebody will say, okay, government doesn't want to pay tax. How can you make the government pay tax? You introduce what is called as a reverse charge. Mm. So every time government provides you a service of, let's say, passport, driving license, somebody will say these are sovereign services. Let us exempt government. Okay. Government is into construction, government is into renting of land, mm. government is into all kinds of things. So we have today more than two dozen exemptions for the government, or we have got what is called as reverse charge. Mm. Then advocates say we are not, we don't provide any service. We are officers of the court. Retired judges say we are arbitrators. How can you make the Supreme Court retired judges pay tax? Mm. So I say, okay, I got to exclude you. Then industry would come. Then somebody will say religion is to be exempted. Mm. How can you tax religion in this country? So I faced this. In 2012, I wrote a law, something like that. And then somebody said, VK, you have not exempted spirituality. Mm. There is a subtle difference between the two. Mm. So I exempted spirituality. Mm. Then somebody said, you have not exempted yoga. I said yoga is covered twice already. Yoga okay. is covered as alternate system of medicine. Yoga is covered as spirituality. Mm -hmm. Until Babaji said, no, you must exempt yoga. So yoga is today exempted three times. Amazing. Amazing. So what happens is people want a customized treatment mm -hmm. to their problem in their language. And it goes on endlessly. And then vested interest develops and so on and so forth. At so the end the, of the, exceptions become the rule. Exceptions become the rule. And to give you the contrast, in New Zealand, when they said, how can you ta tax fruits and vegetables? Mm -hmm. He says, I'm not going to distinguish between an apple and McDonald's. Mm -hmm. In fact, <laughs> apple is consumed by rich people. They tax cremation and burials. I was being scared to death that VK, if you forget to exempt burials and these things, you will be completely out of the government. Correct. So I think we have to get out of this mindset of unnecessary discrimination between one thing and another. Mm. We can always reimburse tax collected to the poor by way of direct subsidy. Mm. Singapore model is somewhat to that extent. Mm. Tax everything at a very low rate. I think they had 5% or something. Earlier they had 3% perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Tax everybody. Reach out the money to the poor by directly crediting their accounts and forget about it. So tell me, and I'm sure you've asked this been asked this question many times as well. What is the role of politicians in enforcement? Maybe I'll have to disappoint you a little bit. Uh -huh. See, in so far as the tax departments are concerned, I spend more time in the central government, very little in the state government. Politicians don't really interfere. Okay. And I can claim with some immodesty that I have spent very long time in enforcement. Maybe nobody has raided me, raided anybody as much as I was able to do that in the initial years. 
I don't remember even a single case in my career for 30 years where a politician tried to interfere. That's that's very reassuring to me. That's and politicians would at times tell you that one of your officers is not doing justice to the job or something of that, which I think is his duty to perform. Mm. He's after all a representative of the people. But I never got any intimidating call from anybody who is a politician. So moving on, you know, uh, Vicky, you have worked on the union budget and, you know, it is an annual exercise that the country goes through. For all our viewers and listeners, help us understand the effort that goes into building the union budget. Yeah, budget, of course, is a very beautiful process and I would like to say done quite scientifically also. Mm -hmm. See, there is, first of all, a very wide industry consultation. Right. So typically now budget is now on the 1st of February when I used to do it, it used to be 28th of February. So we would start inviting industry, we will write to them by August or September mm -hmm. and we will ask them to give suggestions. Mm -hmm. Then the top around 50 chambers of industry and commerce would be invited, one or two on a particular day, mm -hmm. to make their physical presentations. Mm -hmm. So they each get about an hour or so. So they will make the presentations before a set of officials mm -hmm. and finally culminating into six presentations before the finance minister. Okay. So there'll be a session for economists, agriculturalists, industry, banking sectors, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So after that, as because I was the joint secretary, it is his responsibility to collate all these suggestions that have come and pick up those which are having some rational justification to act upon. There are some, you know, irrelevant demands also. Mm -hmm. Then you will write your comments in a broadsheet that yes, for these reasons it should be done or done in a modified form or sometimes even outrightly rejected. Mm -hmm. They are deliberated in a team of officials with the Secretary of Revenue, Chairman of the boards and then summarized and finally they are taken to the Finance Minister who may have at times the chief economic advisor or the finance secretary also mm -hmm. attend the session. Mm -hmm. And in great confidentiality, then that is discussed. The very important ones, he would take it to the prime minister's office and uh, sound them. And if required, take approval also, and so on and so forth. There is also a parallel consultation with the administrative ministries. Okay. And then uh, people write speech and it gets into publication, printing of the thing, which is a very, very highly, highly confidential job. Nobody can take a piece of paper out or in. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So for the budget speech to be read out on the 1st of February, mm -hmm. when does the exercise start? See, writing of the budget speech would start about 10 days uh, before that. No, but the whole planning of the budgeting exercise. Budgeting exercise these days are much contracted because GST is outside the budget now. Oh, I see. But okay. It's a constant thing. So on the indirect size, the main thing is custom. The size is only on petroleum products. So, and on the income tax side also, much of the reform is done. Mm -hmm. So I would like to believe in our times, it used to be a process of around 45 days. From the budget to D minus 45 days. Today, it could be even 30 days or something of that time. Very interesting. So, you know, VK, you spent a lot of time at the Delhi International Airport. And... Uh, I understand that you made some really path-breaking reforms and customs there. Talk to me about some of these reforms. See, I was posted to Delhi airport in slightly unfortunate circumstances. There was a big scandal and I was posted post that. Okay. 
and uh, practically the entire brass, top brass of the airport had been removed at that time. So we were suffering uh, some kind of a trust deficit also. So I, within seven days of my joining, I decided to unleash a series of reform. Mm -hmm. And Indian Express at that time carried a story, customs want to shock you with a smile. Mm -hmm. So the, there were many components of the reform. The first mm -hmm. was the legal reform. Mm -hmm. So I thought that customs were very restrictive. So we needed to really see what does a passenger do when he goes abroad? Mm -hmm. And what is the more legitimate part of that? Now, some of the more legitimate thing that came to my mind was that you take your laptop and you bring it back. There was a complicated procedure that yes, to, to get it entered in passport and yep. so forth. I in fact saw one day Mr. Narayan Murthy being questioned there. Mm -hmm. So I thought that okay, laptop should be allowed. At least a used laptop should be allowed. Mm -hmm. Until the PM decided I'm not going to distinguish between new and old. So that was allowed. Then I saw everybody had a temptation to carry an extra bottle of whiskey. Because the legitimacy or the genuineness of whiskey was an issue in the city. I said, if you allow an extra bottle, probably, you know, half the people will stop facing harassment. So like that, there were quite a few things, dog-related issues were there. A lot of people used to face harassment, extra allowances, etc. So that was one component um, of the reform that we did. Right. Second was the procedural reform. Hmm. You get your baggage mishandled. So there were a lot of issues. So I devised a procedure that your baggage can be delivered in the comfort of your hotel or your home through couriers and you don't have to come to the airports. Third was that how do you attack the smugglers mm. through technology? So I got into the data of past events. I got it entered into the immigration system itself so that when he's getting his immigration done, an alert comes to the custom that such and such person has arrived. So there was a drill that he can't now escape. Mm. So other people could then be clear. Mm. But the more interesting part was the behavioral change. Okay. In fact, I called people at that time from a five-star hotel to tell customs officer how to give a smart look. Okay. They even would tell that, okay, you, you can't wear the same uniform without being dry cleaning for a certain number of days, beyond a certain number of days. Right. I trained them to greet people in five international languages, mm. Japanese, French, Arabic, mm. and some of those kind of things. Mm. Lastly, I wrote an idiot's book. So people are fully conversant to the law. Amazing. Amazing. So these are the kind of things that you. And I, and I, I've been. I, I didn't know you. You were behind it, but I mean, I for the last twenty years have been tra traveling at least fifteen to twenty times a year out of India, and I've I've seen the incredible changes. More particularly in the Delhi airport, and I don't know how many people must have thanked you for the thanked you for the second bottle. At least now we know who did it. So uh, one more question for you and then a few questions for you personally. You know, as, your, as the current advisor on financial resources to the CM Punjab, what is your role? So basically, you know, Punjab was a relatively more stressed uh, state on the finances and GST was about to be ushered. So my role was how exactly to improve the financial resources of the state. Okay. So, this was the role and uh, I made my own humble contribution to that role in some ways. Hmm. No, I'm sure. And yet, the impression at least I used to have was that Punjab was the most prosperous in the wealthiest state. Something seemed to have gone wrong a few years ago. See, Punjab has missed a few waves. Hmm. First was this uh, 1980 because of the terrorism for 15 years or so. 
so by the time we recovered then this uh, wto and uh, industrialization you know in uh, gujarat and that thing came because everything became open people wanted to set up industry where the sea was there ocean was there so a lot of industry moved to the coastal areas then relationship with pakistan deteriorated so we lost that business then came this hilly area concessions we surrounded by himachal uttar pradesh jnk our industry moved to the neighboring states who were given huge tariff concessions and again when we tried now last 4 5 years i think haryana has gone much ahead right so those are the kind of challenges we faced fair enough so i have time for a few questions for you personally we can you know you you've said a few times that a lot of things that have happened to you have happened by chance my question to you is what does success mean to you see over the years now if you ask me this question today this this wasn't this couldn't have been my answer let's say 10 years back or so mm-hmm. yeah. today i feel that if i'm able to realize my potential mm-hmm. i'm successful it doesn't make a difference how people perceive it whether in their commercial terminology mm-hmm. it is a successful life and but i feel yes i have fulfilled my life and, and that's success to me yeah. and after a successful career after so many things that you have done my question to you is where do you draw your inspiration from asthosh very very tough to answer this question but simply the call is from the within see i would think that i listen more to my within than to bosses and people around generally but then within gets guided by a lot of factors i don't know whether it gets guided by my reading whether it gets guided by my experiences whether it gets guided by the feedback i generally get from people mm. and i don't think i get too much influenced by press or you know people who are in authority mm. so there is an element of within uh, in that okay fair enough point taken i have time for two more questions if you vk were a role model to millions of children who closely followed your life choices what is the one thing you would change in yourself thing i'll change in myself um, see generally you know i am not a trp kind of a guy i won't seek a change or mold myself because i'll become more popular to a section of people but definitely i feel that if i'm talking to children if it was adults i wouldn't have made even that change i think i would like to make myself more relevant to them okay i would like i'd be very conscious that yes i shouldn't be talking of things which mean nothing to their world and their challenges okay so how do i relate to them more well, well said i'm a last last question to you and i come back to the pandemic that we are all facing how are you rethinking your life in the new world order i've thought over this question this kind of question a number of times in the past first of all new world doesn't scare in in the manner it, it scares a lot of people mm-hmm. i think every human being is blessed with one of the fundamental qualities to be able to change mm-hmm. and if you keep doing that process on a day to day basis something like the you know small arm of a clock mm-hmm. then you don't have to make an extraordinary preparation mm-hmm. and you don't have to embrace all the change so you see that okay this is the direction of the change most of the time i have led is i have always planned my life 5 years ahead what is likely to happen 5 to 10 years from today 
most people find me doing things that okay we can today is not relevant why are you doing it but change has been catching much faster than most people have thought that's probably one we are happy to do no that's that's a good that's a great answer so we can thank you so much it's been such a pleasure speaking to you um, i mean i've learned so many new things and i must thank you on behalf of thousands of travelers for the little extra tipple that we could always purchase at delhi airport thank you for making uh, being so so honest and so forthright and i wish you lots of success thank you ashtu pleasure was mine also great thank you for listening to the brand called you video cast and podcast a platform that brings you knowledge experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals you can also follow us on youtube facebook instagram and twitter just search for the brand called you